people who are going for big lives that are unique to them, it's harder than if you just want to check boxes. You are listening to Let It Out with me, your host, Katie Dalebout. This week, one of my favorite authors and someone who, since she came on the podcast for the first time, has become a dear friend, Kayleen Schaefer. She's a journalist and the author of the book, Text Me When You Get Home, which was wildly praised as witty and one of my favorite texts. I talk about it all the time and it really was an impactful book for me. And if you haven't listened to the episode where we talk about Text Me at length, go back and listen to that with Kayleen. We talk about what it was like when we actually recorded that in person in New York a little bit in this episode, which you'll hear at the beginning. She also wrote the best-selling Kindle single. It's a memoir about her brother called Fade Out. And I read it prior to that interview. And I think we talk about it a little bit in that first interview, but I highly recommend reading that if you haven't already. Her work has appeared in the New York Times, Vanity Fair, The New Yorker, Vogue, and many other publications. She's an editor and her new book, But You're Still So Young, is out now. It follows eight people struggling to make the leap into adulthood in some way. I just finished it before we did this interview, and as you'll hear me say over and over again, I, like the New York Times, had a glowing review of this book. She uses this checklist that sociologists in the 1950s came up with, which was finish school, leave home, make your own money, marry, and become a parent. And those were the markers of becoming an adult in your 30s. And we cover each of these and how race and class and privilege play into all of this and our ability to and our desire to meet these arbitrary checklists. And she weaves together the stories of the eight characters in this book, as well as her story. And I loved it. And I loved talking about this book. And as you'll hear in a minute, I spoke a lot about my 30s and turning 30 in the midst of the pandemic and just really facing my aging and facing what it means to be an adult and how my life is nothing like I thought it would be at this age, but I'm actually really grateful for what I do have. So Kayleen and I have a conversation about that, and then we also talk about her writing practices and writing rituals and how they've changed since she became a mother through the pandemic, and she gives advice to writers and advice for being a a grown-up person navigating their 30s. This week, we want to highlight an organization to support. So with everything going on this week, we would love to support the fairfightinitiative.org. Through litigation and community advocacy, Fair Fight Initiative exposes mistreatment in the law enforcement system and works to end mass incarceration. The link to support them will be in the show notes. Enjoy the episode. As always, I'm so grateful that you're here and that you're listening. 
Kayleen, I'm so happy you're here. Thank you for doing this. Thank you for having me, Katie. I'm excited to talk to you. I wish we were recording in person as you reminded me in the email when we recorded our interview when Text Me When You Get Home, your first book came out. We were in your apartment that you talk about in the new book in the midst of a huge thunderstorm. And I remember it like it was yesterday and your boyfriend came home super soaked, but both of us <laughs> missed it. Like we were recording. It was one of those really quick New York <laughs> thunderstorms. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, no, we were sitting there and I think the windows were open and we were like, maybe we should close mm-hmm. the like rain. <laughs> just started just a crazy down. Yeah. Yeah. It's oh, it really the first time that we've met and it was just like, we're sitting inside while this downpour is happening. It was great. It was yeah. Great. It was a really kismet first meet. I think like a, a photo or something. It was really windy too. And like a photo mm-hmm. fell off your wall and kind of, that was yeah. we were like, uh, we, we were just kind yeah, of, it did. I remember now that you're saying that. Yes. It absolutely didn't. We were like, Oh no. What was that? I know. Cause I think we both were just kind of like ignoring the elements and we're like, uh-huh. it's fine. Let's like not talk about this and get this done, you know? And then finally we're like, we need to like interact with what's happening outside. We of need to shut the windows. Cause it was summer. I think it was really hot. Yeah. So it was, it was one of those like really like, intense heat storms. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then after that, we bonded and you were so are, are, but you've always been so kind to me. And I remember after that, you connected me with some of your friends who have since come on the podcast and we just kept in touch in, in New York. And I remember hearing about the concept of, of this book yeah, while we were... No kidding. You've known about it for a long time, actually. Yeah. And... I just, you know, since we talked, there's so much to congratulate you on. You became a mom, which is so huge. Yeah. And I want to talk about, and then obviously this book, which is so wonderful and really hit me hard around the new year because I, this feeling started for me. I turned 30 April 30th of last year. So peak pandemic. Right. Yeah. (laughs) And really, really pandemic. Yeah. Super (laughs) pandemic y. Um, And it just kind of came and went because there were bigger fish to fry. But then around the new year, I had this really intense anxiety feeling that I wasn't where I thought I would be by this age. At 30. At 30. You had that age 30 deadline in your head. Yeah. 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 And it hit me like a couple months later. And but in, in other ways, I was really just like the theme of the book. I was really happy with how my life had gone. And as soon as the gratitude peaked in, I would then feel shame over not having the career successes that I thought I would by my age or living in a studio apartment that, you know, not having a partner, like all of these other things would creep mm-hmm. in as I was like being grateful for my friends or, you know, all the cool yeah. things that I do yeah. have. And I remember your book popped into my mind, your book that didn't even exist yet. This is like January popped into my mind. And I remember sitting across from you at, I think we're at Jack's Wife Frida, or maybe this is another time when we were like at a coffee shop in Williamsburg or something. But I remember you talking to me about this concept of this book and you were thinking about the title. And I don't know if you remember this, but I said nothing like I thought it would be about my mm-hmm. 20s. And you were like, maybe mm-hmm. that should be the title of the book. And I just got so excited that your book was about <laughs> to come out. And then like soon after that, you emailed me that I was going to get an early copy. And it just 
it's incredible. And I'm so psyched to talk to you about it today. <laughs> I'm psyched too. And it, it is funny because we it, talk, listening to you remind me about the struggle to come up with the right title. Like it took years to come up with this title, which turned into, but you're still so young. That phrase, I think, also has nothing like I thought it would be, you know, baked in. It's about potential and, and it's about feeling unsettled. Yeah. And gosh, there, I have, I said this to you before we started recording, but I have copious notes that I'm like feeling, <laughs> I'm feeling like the 30s, the anxiety of like getting it all in in this hour. But I guess to jump around, I mean, I think. I just reread the last page and my my lucky number and like a kismet sign I see all the time is 22 or 222 or the number okay. repeating numbers. And uh-huh. your book is 222 pages. And is I just, it, it is. I, I don't even know that. <laughs> well, I wouldn't I was remember. Like, where is this going? What is the number, Katie? <laughs> I don't remember there being a number at the end. Uh-huh. Well, there story. is. And it's so funny because like two seconds before we got on Zoom, I was like, I'm just going to reread this last page one more time because, you know, it'd been a minute since I'd read that page. Mm-hmm. And I got the same feeling that I got the first time I read it, which was, I feel like, again, we're jumping around and I want to talk more about we specific... Jumped right to the end. Yeah, we jumped I right to it. the end. I love it. I like <laughs> um, the ending very much. It's so good. And and I was starting to tell you too that you know your story is weaved in with eight others and we'll get into all of it. But I feel like a big underlying theme of this book to me was uncertainty and change and leaning into that and keeping Mm -hmm. going rather than resisting it because Mm -hmm. it might not be what you thought it was going to be. Or for us as one of the first generations that the timeline is off and things are different, warming up to that, you talk about the 30s as being a deadline to stop trying to figure things out. And I'm super still figuring it out. Mm -hmm. And that optimism at the end and that just Mm -hmm. keep going. And it's more, it's about acceptance too. So I guess those three themes really were weaved through every story, including yours, which is uncertainty, change, acceptance, and keeping going in it rather than resisting it. And I just felt the sense of relief as I reread that page. And then I looked down and I saw two, 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 and I was like, Oh, that's funny. It was Mm -hmm. just the message I needed to see to feel us alone, which is such a theme of this book. Yeah. I'm really glad you said that to feel less alone because that was part of the reason that I started writing it was because I was not sure if I had done things right. Or if, if I was the one who was like a little bit askew and everyone else had gotten in line and was checking off everything on their life checklist. Um, so that's that's what prompted me to write it too, to find these other people, these eight other people that I followed too, and to tell their stories and to make the larger point that, you know, you can go on your own timeline, you can check whatever milestones off that you are ready for at your own pace. And that's totally okay. And you're not alone. Like that's the point of the book. Yeah. Well, it accomplished that so well. And I, I'm curious before we get to the eight people and, yes. and more specifics from the book, 
I know someone said to you, I heard you say that someone said to you, but you're still so young. And then that's how you knew that Mm -hmm. that would be the title. But I'm also like, what, before you came up with the concept for this book and pitched it, did you have anything or anyone who made you feel less alone in that uncertainty feeling of your 30s? Oh, that's a really good question, Katie. I hadn't thought about it that way. And in fact, when I first thought about this book, I was really worried I was wrong. <laughs> you know, I was worried that like I was the 30s had only been in flux for me and that everyone else was like, what are you talking about? We're not delayed. We're not still figuring things out. <laughs> so I don't know, but you know, I did have friends around me who clearly were not the same as like, I'm from Texas and a lot of my friends from high school did marry young, did settle into careers that they still have from their twenties and they kept with them, you know, had children earlier. So they were sort of following that more traditional path, but even the friends around me that I saw every day, they weren't, but there was still something about looking at that social media of people back home. And I think a lot of people, I've had people write to me since the book came out and say, it's a nice counter to, you know, we see all these congratulations on social media. And I, and I think you should post when, when something happens and great in your life, you get a promotion, you buy a house, you get married you have children, I absolutely post, we need to congratulate each other on these wonderful moments. But sometimes that's all you see. And that's what you think everyone's doing. And you don't see the uncertainty and the like, am I ready for this? Or I don't, I don't think this is for me, or am I doing this wrong? Or this isn't what I thought it would be. And so it's great to have people who are also struggling and, and will admit it. So yeah, I think that's a great question. I, but I don't know that I was talking about that a lot. Yeah. with my friends, even, even as I saw that we were all kind of like figuring it out. Yeah. It, it's funny. Cause I had a, a moment I had, I hosted a Christmas Eve for my friends here, you know, and, and it was the first year that none of us were going home mm-hmm. and, and I'm in a new city and we have, I have this like essentially dinner party safe pod of people I was right. seeing. And my friends are making these sourdough pizzas. Everyone's like cooking. It was so nice to have people in my home. And it, it reminded me a lot of the 30th birthday party that you talk about, your 30th birthday party that you talk <laughs> yeah. about in the book. Uh-huh. And uh, I didn't know I was going to tell the story, but here we are. So <laughs> here we are now. I have this. I have this. You party. can't stop talking. Yeah. <laughs> I'm in. Um, and I am mortified because my friends are in my kitchen and one of my friends has to go home to her house to like get proper kitchen supplies because I don't Uh have enough things. Uh I I don't have like a sheet pan. Like there are like very essential things I don't have. And I just felt like such a Uh non-adult. And then I was so focused on making this beautiful um, platter of (laughs) snacks, not snacks, um, more of a, it was really all about the presentation and how fancy this uh-huh. board of things was. Right. But I right. didn't really eat any of the board of things, but I sure <laughs> drank a lot of wine. And suddenly I, for the majority of the, not the majority, fully all of the party, I was like very ill. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God, I am trying to have a holiday and I am, uh-huh. I'm a feeling up on your own. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. And I felt mm-hmm. like I, 
I feel like I missed a lot of my 20s in so many ways. And I want to have the 20s that I missed in my 20s and my 30s, mm-hmm. which is fine, except I also have wrinkles and like my hair is graying now. <laughs> and, you know, right. You're also um, in your 30s. Yeah. yeah, I'm also in my 30s. But it was just, you know, I think that's what spawned that that like wanting of your book because it was my moment of, oh man, am, am I so behind? And then of course, like seeing I'm from Michigan, as you know, seeing mm-hmm. people who I went to high school with on their like third child and mm-hmm. I'm there, I don't have a sheet pan, you know, that yeah. comparison <laughs> is so intense. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> but um, I understand what you're saying completely. Like I, like you said, I wanted to have a grown up 30th birthday party and I was, I was going to be an adult and have this adult party. And, you know, as you read through the book, you can see that it was just a debacle. And I ended it like totally not the grown up that I thought I was going to become based on this grown up 30th birthday that I was throwing. Well, I mean, it goes back to like, it's such an arbitrary number, I guess. And to have this deadline where you have to have everything figured out or stop trying to figure things out. And it was just so cathartic. You did such a great job following these eight people making the leap into adulthood and their different ways. And you put their story plus research and so much research that was so fascinating to me, plus your own story. And with all of these different perspectives, it was so well-written and achieved making me feel less alone in the complexity that our 30s are. My favorite parts were your story because I know you and it just, (laughs) I kept, I got, I was so excited. I ended up falling in love with the eight people, but I, I really, you know, every time your story would peep up, it, it, I really loved it so much. And so I'm curious about this, the process of this book in every way, but I guess I would love to know, I want to talk about the eight people, but first, was it cathartic for you to write this? Yes, I think is the answer. It just, the cathartic nature is not immediately apparent. Like, as you'll see, my story is, I mean, some of it, some of it did happen in real time. A lot of it's reflection. A lot of it is looking back because I was 39 when I started the book. So, you know, I take you through my 30s. And so, yeah, some of it did happen in real time. And that's a little tougher for me to write about because I like to have a little step back and, and be able to write about it when it's not as fresh and when I've thought about it and when I can you know, tell the story without being too emotional or too close to it. Um, but I think just even putting together the whole idea, this feeling I had, like we talked about at the beginning that at 39, my thirties hadn't gone like I thought they would, but I didn't feel bad about them, but I did, you know, sort of question if I was supposed to feel worse about them. (laughs) Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, Like, you know, I was happy, but I still thought that wasn't how I thought it would be. And now, 
you know, writing this and looking at all the research, which I think is important, but I, I'm the kind of person who's not totally swayed by a lot of stats. So I knew the stats were out there that, you know, we were delaying marriage, we were delaying having children, you know, our careers weren't as stable, our finances weren't as stable either. So I knew those things, but until I spent time following other people in their 30s and really looking at my own story and putting it all together, I didn't feel as sure that that what we're doing is is something that lots of people in their 30s are doing. And even though we're doing different things, we're checking off different milestones and saying different things are important to us. It feels like it's something we're doing together, even though we're not doing the same thing. So it was cool to put that all together. Yeah. So in the 1950s, sociologists came up with a checklist for entering adulthood, which becomes a framework for for this book. And the, the, the list is finish school, leave home, make your own money, marry and become a parent. And of course, you know, as people are are listening and what I did as I, I read mm. through the book is you go through the checklist yourself and what mm-hmm. you've done and what you haven't. And I was wondering if you could talk about how you discovered that checklist, did, which which came first, the idea of exploring your 30s or did you find the checklist? The idea of exploring my 30s came first, which is why I was, it was just such a nebulous concept. And, and even as I was talking about the idea to some friends, they were sort of like, well, that happens in New York and LA, but I don't know about the rest of the country. And it really led to this feeling of like, am I wrong? Is my experience incorrect? And so then I started researching um, what the 30s had been like in the past and was actually really surprised to find that adulthood had been defined so specifically by sociologists in the 1950s. And it was also sort of gratifying because it gave me a little, like, it realized why that had been banging around in my head so much and in plenty of other women's and men's heads too, that this is how you set up your adulthood because it was actually defined. <laughs> like people had this checklist and they did all of these things in their late teens or early 20s, usually. Um, so yeah, I found the definition as I was starting to think about and research the book and thought that that made a good framework for the book, not because I want to sanction the milestones. And like you said, everyone, when you say them, goes through and is like, well, what have I done? What have I not done? I just think it's just natural. So I did frame the book around these five milestones because I think even if you decide not to do them or can't, you still think about them and think, should I have this? Is this important to me? Do I want to do this? So I think everyone kind of at least thinks about whether they want these milestones. Yeah. It was a really great framework. And I heard you say on another podcast that this project was a bigger undertaking than your first book, Text Me When You Get Home, which is so meaningful to me. And I, as you know, love so much and people should go back and listen to our interview about that if they haven't already. Yes. But no. Katie's love for the book. I really appreciate it. And it made me so happy I'm because I was girl. my first book and to hear people reacting the way you did was incredible. Mm, yeah. Well, people should go back and listen to our thunderstorm conversation. <laughs> um, but I heard you say that the process of this was a much bigger undertaking. So I'm curious about the process of this book and 
like I said, I remember sitting in a cafe with you in Williamsburg and that must have been 2019. And I know that you were already in the process of researching it and like pretty far along. And I, I actually remember very vividly you telling me that it was coming out in 2021 and me like laughing and being like, I'm sorry, what? Like that's so <laughs> far away. I couldn't yeah. conceive of it. And I mean, little did we know. I know. Couldn't conceive of what the world would become. <laughs> like, oh my goodness. Oh my gosh. Yeah. But with that, I, I'd love to know what started. Did you start with research? Did you start with finding the, the eight people? Can you talk about how you found them? Mm-hmm, of course. Well, since you brought up text me, I guess even at the start, so text me when you get home is about female friendship and how our friends are just as important as say our romantic partners, our jobs, um, our children, like as important to our support system. And so I really liked looking at a way to structure your life that was different from the norm. So that was different from what women had been told for years and years that our friends were as important as all these other ties. And so in this book, I also wanted to look at structuring your life differently, and in this way, adulthood and how adulthood now is not just confined to those five milestones. So they, they did, it, it does, it's not a sequel, obviously, but it does, they do, like, they do relate, or one did lead to the next. Um, but at first, I had the idea of talking to a bunch of people in their 30s. In Text Me, I interviewed 100 women about their friendships. And this wow, time- I, I didn't like, realize it was that many. Yeah, I mean, I don't use all their stories. Right. and um, But I did like take a really like wide look at friendships. And I thought I'd do the 30s in the same way and just do like focus groups. But then I realized that we're not all living through the 30s the same way. And I was specifically looking for people still filling out their lives, like who didn't have a map and were enjoying the freedom of that, but also understood the terror of that. So I was looking for a specific mindset of going through the 30s. And then I thought, and I also really like to tell stories. You know, I don't, sometimes you say nonfiction book and people just think like, ugh. Boring, and I I hope that my nonfiction is not boring, and and that it is like I want to you know have suspense. I want you to wonder where these stories are going. Like I want to draw you in. So I decided to just try to tell some people's stories, and did about fifty interviews to find these people. And these were like quick interviews, um, just to get a sense of how people spoke, you know, where they lived, where they were in their life, what their story was. I wanted to talk to them also to see how open they would be with me, just how willing they would be to like share their internal struggles with a complete stranger. And so I ended up asking about 15 people if I could talk with them for extended periods of time and then sort of just winnowed down because I also had the five milestones as a framework. So I wanted to talk to people who I could specifically tell their story within those milestones and that's just how I that's how I narrowed it down to the eight people that I have ended up following for two years. Wow. They had to be so vulnerable with you and talk about their insecurities and fears and hopes and dreams. And that really is a testament to you and your journalistic skills and your interviewing skills of being able to create a safe space and build relationships with these people. So I'm I'm curious if you have 
any advice on that, on interviewing or listening from a journalistic perspective or a writing perspective or what helped you in those conversations? I will say I did sort of take it slow. Like the first time I spoke with these people, I wasn't like, so can I follow you for a year and will you tell me everything? You know, we just did an initial interview and then we, I said, you know, maybe can we talk another time? And then I said, I'd like to follow you for a while. And I'm always really clear about my intentions, which I think is important. And I'm always willing to ask, answer any questions that the sources might ask. Because um, a few of them were like, well, what do you want to do with this? What is your angle? And I, you know, I'm asking a lot of them. So if they're asking me these questions and I should be willing to answer them and be open about what I'm doing. Like it, I didn't ever want to feel like I had all the power in the relationship. And so I think it was just, you know, being a human at the other end of the line that I think led to these really great relationships with all of them. You know, I I couldn't be afraid to ask them really personal questions, but they weren't afraid to answer either. And it just kind of worked out that I like talking with them and they like talking with me. And, you know, before the book was published, I showed them all their stories and we talked about them. And it it was just a lot of trust on on both of our sides. Mm, Yeah, that's clear in the end result for sure. Do you, you obviously built like real relationships with them. Do you think you'll keep in touch with any of them? Uh, yeah, I do actually. I, I wrote them all um, notes and sent them early copies of the books and then checked in um, as we got good press and good buzz. Um, and then I've also like, I just emailed them all last week. Cause I was sort of like, I miss you guys. What's going on? How are you feeling? Cause I also wanted to check and in, in make sure that this process has been okay for them because some of them, you know, haven't there. It's only first names in the book. They're all real first names, but some of them have been open about who they are, you know, posting on the book on Instagram or on Twitter. And then some of them have just completely not said anything, which is, you know, you can go either way, obviously, whatever they felt comfortable with. But so I did want to check in and be like, how are you guys feeling? Are you all right? Is there anything we want to talk about after? Because now that the book's in the world. Yeah. Because there's obviously like this fine line between, you know, you are a journalist and journalism ethics and like also just being people with each other. And this isn't like a you know, your your book is not like a gotcha piece. You're just telling the the true stories of of people. And you know, my podcast is is not really journalism, but I often do like with you <laughs> become friends with people that I had on because I liked a piece of art that they made. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't always happen, but I think there is this it is real. Like the connection with someone when you're interviewing them for something is still a connection. And you, I want to pick up on something that you mentioned, which is taking it slow and then sharing about yourself. And that's something in my experience of interviewing that it's just like with dating or friendship, like jumping into heavy things immediately, you have to kind of warm up the mics and and build a comfortable ground for people to be able to open up. And that requires patience and 
getting into a volley and the connections that are made are real, even though the purpose of it is for something else. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely true. Even um, with the book, like I think I'd been talking to um, the eight people for about a year and then the book finally got announced. So um, it's in, I think it's called Publisher's Lunch. It's an, It's like an industry newsletter. And I sent them all the announcement because, you know, I, I wanted them to see it. And I just wanted to, you know, them to be aware of where we were in the process. But even a couple of them were like, whoa, this is actually going to be a book. <laughs> like, we just thought we were chatting to you. <laughs> you know, like the realization of what we were really doing kind of hit them about a year in when they got announced. But it didn't change anything. But it was just sort of like you said, it's a it's a long process and it's this neat process if you give yourself over to it. Yeah. When you were talking about the way you write nonfiction, it's so specific and you create such stakes that it, exactly like you said earlier, I was incredibly invested and I would stop reading the book at certain points and be like, I don't even want to give things away, but I'll just say on the edge of my seat in your story, <laughs> even though I kind of knew how yours ended, but I didn't know like one specific detail that I didn't know if it was people will know when they read it. And definitely for a lot of the stories of others. And it was thrilling how you weaved it all together. So I'm curious how you wrote it. Did you write your parts all out and then weave it into the stories of others? Or did you figure out which vulnerable stories of your own you wanted to share as you were writing the main stories of through the framework? It was not a very clear process. And the answer is a little bit of both. I did look at the book a little chunk-like. Like I I wrote the character stories and I wrote my own and then I put in the research part, but this was a very, very tricky book to put together. And I think like, if you don't notice that, then I think that that is, that means that I did it pretty okay. Because I mean, I moved stories around, didn't know where to start, didn't know where this one should end, what chapter this one should be in, or you know, it, it was very tricky. Like nine people is a lot of people's stories to tell. And I wanted to tell them fully because even though, you know, they may be in the marriage chapter, I also talk about all other aspects of their lives because just to talk about their relationships, you know, leaves out a whole lot. And I think with my own story too, you know, I wanted to touch on all the five milestones, but I also just wanted to share my life and myself. So I had to figure out a way to do that throughout the book also. It was it was tricky to put together. It took a lot of drafts. And then the pandemic started. I had a draft in February of 2020 and the pandemic started and it was clear to me that that meant I wasn't done. And that meant these milestones that I was talking about we're going to get even more delayed and the story was going to become even more true. So I rewrote a lot then. Wow. Yeah. I was going to ask you how you... Well, first of all, 
you did make it look easy because it's, <laughs> I, and I remember thinking of that as I read it. Cause I knew that you, I taught, I remember talking to you when I was in Australia over email and you had said, yeah, I submitted the manuscript and I was like, oh, cool. Congrats. <laughs> yeah, and, done. We're done here. <laughs> yeah. And, and then when I read the book, I was like, pardon, she's like wrote this in March because there's so <laughs> much mention of of COVID and of the pandemic and how that affects all of this. And, and even the ending I'm sure changed because the, the ending Mm -hmm. addressed it even on that last page I just reread. And I I had Julia Tertian on a couple of weeks ago and there's a photo Mm -hmm. of her and her cookbook that just came out on the last page wearing a mask. And I was, you know, it struck me of like how she decided to, memorialize Mm -hmm. this moment in Mm -hmm. something that will last forever, like a book. And you definitely did that too. And I mean, you had to for this Mm -hmm. book, right? Like, was it ever that had to feel so frustrating? I can imagine you knew you would have to do edits, but to really change a lot of this, was that talk to me about that? (laughs) It was, it was stressful on a lot of levels, because if you if you remember that time and you can get in touch with that time, it was it was just very dark and scary. So just you know, personally, everyone felt like this is very unknown, very stressful, and we didn't know how long it would last or what the impact would be. And you know, I, I we still don't really know what the impact of this is going to be long term. And so, you know, just in addition to this personal anxiety, I was also trying to write something that I was putting out in the world and I knew it would be out in a year from now. And there was the question like, well, you know, do we, do we change this? Do we address this at all? What if this lasts? You know, I feel like at the time, you know, it was like, well, this is going to be two weeks of lockdown or whatever. Like there were, there were those theories also floating around, but I think, and maybe just because I, I lived in Brooklyn and was really at the heart of it at the beginning, I thought that this was going to last a lot longer and was going to become much more important to the book I was writing. And especially just to people in your 30s, this recession that we are going through now is our second once in a lifetime recession, you know, so just the economic part alone, so massive. And, you know, around me, people were being furloughed or asked to take pay cuts, or people were moving and changing their whole entire lives like you did. I mean, you moved across country. So it it just, I mean, it just intensified everything and everyone's life choices, I think, that moment in time. And I knew that I wanted to address it. It was an opportunity. I still had time. I could address it. And so I decided to address it. Yeah, I'm so glad you did. And moving across the country, I think you talk about this early in in the book. I remember my ears like perking up at that moment when you discussed how that is actually a big milestone. You know, Mm -hmm. it's not, Mm -hmm. I I didn't think of it as such and I haven't achieved a lot of the other ones, but, you know, it's one that my family and parents and like, wasn't modeled for me, but like actually is, Mm -hmm. you know, a big moving is a big part of growing up. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are these new adult milestones that we don't think of because they're not those traditional milestones, but we're doing them and big moves and big travel is a huge part of young adulthood now. Yeah. And one that just, yeah, like we were saying, wasn't, wasn't modeled or wasn't what we 
what we thought we would maybe do. I want to talk about this wonderful New York Times review of the mm-hmm. book that was it was so good and and it says her your tone is both skeptical of these 70-year-old benchmarks and sympathetic to the many people like herself who feel anxious and ashamed for failing to meet them it's not that 30-somethings are ditching school independence and traditional family life out of rebellion but that their efforts are frequently thwarted they are facing the fear that may have been on the edges of our consciousness before we may never get to where we want to be can you talk about that fact that even if we wanted to meet some of these milestones it might not be possible for us now and i think that's quite bleak but there's there's also a trade off of of good things but i'd love to to hear you talk about that a bit i yes that is it's such an important part of the story I'm telling a largely positive story and I'm a pretty optimistic person, but I knew as I was doing this that it's not a wholly positive story. You know, it it is cool that we have choices. It is cool that women don't have to marry as the first step of their adult life anymore. It is cool that we can try out different jobs and don't have to immediately decide on the career we're going to do for the rest of our lives. You know, it is cool that we can wait longer to have children. It's cool that our lives are opened up. But the flip side of that is the question of, are they only opened up because we don't, say, feel financially secure enough to marry or to buy a home or to have children? You know, there are a lot of systemic things in place that mean that our financial security isn't as great as people who are older than us. You know, our wages aren't rising with the cost of living. We don't have universal health care. We don't have universal paid leave. We don't have pensions. So all that stability that people older than us had, we don't have. And that, I think, can really wreak havoc on some of these life decisions that we're trying to make. So there is the flip side of this. And, and as I'm going out here with this message, you know, that, that, but you're still so young, you have time, keep going, get to the life that's right with you. Like I am also wanting to be super mindful of the fact that some of these things may not happen the way that we want them to, whether it's timing or luck or your background or your race or your privilege, like all of us have all these individual factors that that can get in the way or help us make the lives that we want. And so I can't just stand there and be like, it's great. <laughs> you know, we have all these choices because we also have to deal with a lot of things that people older than us didn't have to deal with. Yeah, I think you did a, such a great job weaving that through of, especially in the becoming financially independent chapter of just being really honest with some parts of parent support and how little things like getting an old car that from a parent or a little bit of money or someone paying a a cell phone bill that other people don't have that can be just a push of an advantage to really change 
the game and you were really honest with how your parents were able to help you with something. And there, there was so much vulnerability within that that made some distinctions in my mind that were really helpful in seeing that. Yes, that is a part of the book that I think is really important, but you know, it makes me nervous and gives me anxiety to come out and be like, my parents helped me in these cases financially because the immediate thought is like, well, she's spoiled or she doesn't work hard or, oh, she, she didn't, you know, she doesn't deserve what she has. But I think it's important to be honest about it because someone else who is a journalist may look at what I have and not understand, like, am I not working hard enough? Why can't I have those things? And that's just not true. You know, I have advantages that that person didn't have. But I think if we're not talking about all these individual things that we're doing to, you know, make our lives a hedge against financial adversity, I should say that. So we have to be talking about them. Otherwise, they're hidden and we'll never try to address them as a society at large. Yeah, I think that's so important. It was even just like to be so honest with you, it was helpful for me to know that because I look at you as someone I really admire and I knew that you owned your apartment and I was like knowing them like, oh, okay, cool. Like knowing that information about my friends and my life, talking about money and talking about where they have support, where they don't, where they, you know, you never know if someone saved from working a full-time job, but also does something else, which is the case for me, or if someone's supported by their family and in some ways, like we're all comparing ourselves to each other, I think at a rate more than ever because of social media and because of just the way we live in communities. However, if we're talking about some of it, but not all of it, it can make that really problematic for self-esteem and hard to keep going. Yeah. And it, it's, we don't, we don't talk about these things and we pretend that they're not there because it's hard to look at the problem. I mean, it's hard for me to look at it because when, when we talk about people who are getting financial assistance, you know, that's white people mostly, you know, people of color don't have the same generational wealth because they were kept out of it. You know, they weren't going to college in the same numbers. They weren't able to buy homes in the same numbers. And that is what builds wealth. And so, you know, they're trying to play catch up. Well, white people have this huge advantage. And it's hard to look at stuff like that and to say stuff like that because you don't want to feel like, oh, I I cheated or I just I have these advantages that other people don't have. But unless you admit it, you know. I don't know. I feel like I'm sort of going around in circles because it's like we just don't, I don't have a great guide for how to talk about this stuff. I think you do talk about this stuff with friends and, and they'll say, oh, like, you know, my parents helped me or my parents are doing this for me. But people don't really speak about it on a big stage. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it, that, that part was a real watershed moment for me to, to read and acknowledge that. I want to talk about work and ambition in your 30s. And you you speak about that in the book at length where you talk about specifically your time working at Yahoo and checking your email on the subway and how we're able to work more than... You know, you would come home with your work laptop and you would check your email on the subway and you're constantly working and, and you give this 
quote of a tweet in the book where I forget who said it, but they say something like weekends are no different, except you have more time to get work done. And mm-hmm. I loved that so much. And and you quote this essay about ambition and jobs lost in the pandemic. So I'm curious if you can talk about, you know, I think work is is really the the thing that to me feels most in our control. So what I heard you say this as well, what we both started to make our framework of our 30s around and mm-hmm. how the the pandemic has affected these careers and and just how this is different from how it was in in people's 30s in the past. I had a real what I knew for sure was that I wanted this career as a writer. So when I started my 30s, I my my entire goal was just to get a solid career, save money, and then I would figure out the rest of my personal life. But having my career in place, I thought would be an anchor for the rest of it. And then I got laid off. And that just blew everything apart. You know, I was devastated. This one thing that I thought I had, I didn't have anymore. But in another way, it was freeing because then I didn't have that anymore. And I didn't have to follow this timeline. And I got to figure out if I really wanted those things. But even though, you know, I got laid off early in my 30s, I still kind of carried that idea that that work will save you. That work, you can somehow arrive at a very like secure place by just working hard and, and I'll get somewhere where I can take a breath. So even though I should have known better, I still just thought like, I'll just keep working and working, working, and I'll get to some place where I can say, all right, this is it. I've worked hard enough and now nobody can take this away from me. And in truth, it's the same as with anything. You, you just have to keep going. You know, my career is more about the experience of doing the work than anything that is like set in stone or just there forever. And I think I love that essay about ambition because even though I will say, you know, I'm still very ambitious, I do have the question of where's all this ambition going to get me? And I think that's hit us really hard in this last year because, you know, so many, there's so many jobs were lost, people were furloughed, asked to take pay cuts, you know, it just seemed like any sort of progress we might have made was um, halted. And so I think a lot of people are questioning, you know, what, what is all of this work that I'm doing truly for? Yeah. And that reminds me of one of my favorite parts of the book and something that I actually want to read that when I read it, I really related to. And it's, you know, what is this for? Also thinking of work as like doing something to feed you. Like I talk about that with creativity, like making art or writing, not necessarily because of the money or the success, but because it feeds you. And I think Adam in the book articulated this in a way that I hadn't heard before that that really hit me hard. <laughs> and he says, um, I'm just going to read this part. He started another novel. Writing, he knows, is important to do for himself, no matter if it never has another audience. 
He says, if my brain isn't occupied with a big project, I start spinning my wheels and dwelling on thoughts that make me anxious and nervous. He says, it's not good for me to have that much mental empty room. To that end, he also started a weekly newsletter. And then you go on to to talk about it. And I just, I, I really liked that because I think for me, especially in the pandemic and living alone, the the more if I have a big project, I feel like I have somewhere to put my anxieties. Do you relate mm-hmm. to Adam's quote? And you know, you've had several big projects the last several years. And is that what writing is for you? And and now are you itching to I know you're in book launch mode now, but eventually like will you be itching to have another because of essentially what he said here? Absolutely. The more I do this, the more I realize that it really is about the process, which I think someone may hear me say that and be disheartened and think, but it's really about the reception in the world. And, you know, I want to reach people with my art. And absolutely, like that feels amazing when someone receives the message that I want to put out there. But I think that the real value is just, for me at least, comes from doing the work and, and getting it right and, and making it into something that, that I want to put out there. Yeah. I mean, it's so cheesy. It's like a bumper sticker of like, <laughs> it's about the process, but like, I don't know, <laughs> I know. <the> problem. <laughs> but I like, I hate, like, it's just, I think that, that both things are wonderful things to have, like a good reception of your art. But I also just think that there's something just really cool about being in your head and figuring out what you're trying to say and how you want to do it and building it out of nothing. Yeah, absolutely. This week's episode is brought to you by Sakara. You might remember Sakara because I had the founders, Whitney and Danielle, on the podcast a couple years ago. I met them in New York, love them. They're really cool people. And feeling good really has a lot to do with your mental health, so many factors, and and what we eat really can can make a difference in making sure we're eating enough. Sakara gives you the ability to not just eat foods that are nourishing, but also foods that you really enjoy with chef-crafted, plant-rich meals that build a foundation for feeling your best. So if you're looking to have some food come right to you that is nourishing and tastes really, really great, Sakara believes in giving you more of what's good for you. It's time to seek pleasure in all areas of your life, including what you eat. And if you want to, again, have nourishing food, but actually really enjoy your meals without having to prepare them, Sakara allows for that by giving you nutritious dishes that nourish your body without sacrificing taste. Sakara is a company that focuses on overall wellness, starting with what you eat. They're organic, ready-to-eat meals that are powerful, plant-based with ingredients that are really wholesome, boost digestion, improve energy, and I really, really love. The menu is always chef-crafted, creative. They have ready-to-eat breakfasts, lunches, dinners, 
and it changes weekly so you you never get bored if you want to keep doing it it's delivered right to your door anywhere in the u.s along with delicious plant-rich meals sakara offers daily wellness essentials like supplements and herbal teas to support your nutrition experience the transformative power of plants with their best-selling metabolism super powder made with organic raw cacao it works to boost energy eliminate bloating minimize sugar cravings and reduce fatigue Sakara has received rave reviews from Vogue to the New York Times and, and so many more. And right now, Sakara is offering our listeners, you, 20% off their first order when you go to sakara.com slash let it out or enter the code let it out at checkout. That's Sakara, S-A-K-A-R-A dot com slash let it out to get 20% off your first order. Sakara.com slash let it out. This episode is sponsored by Apostrophe, a prescription skincare company for people that are ready to take their acne seriously. Prescription acne treatment really works, but it's hard to get. You have to take time off of work, go see a doctor, sit in a pharmacy line, wait for your medications until Apostrophe. Listen, I love this company. I'm using this new product from it. Apostrophe makes it easy for you to get board certified dermatologist treatment online. You'll get treated immediately and your medications are delivered directly to your home or your apartment. You simply fill out Apostrophe's online questionnaire about your skin, your all your concerns, your medical history. You snap a few selfies of each side of your face. I, I did my chest as well. I've been getting a lot of sun. And your dermatologist will get back to you with a customized treatment plan tailored just for you. The best part is that Apostrophe offers topical and oral medications so you can treat your acne from the inside out outside in it's really really great apostrophe treats acne and they can also help you hit all your other skincare goals like reducing redness or wrinkles or even dark spots you know if you're me you've got a little bit of everything keep the dermatologists at apostrophe on their toes you know if you're me i had a lot of issues for me, I definitely have acne and I got this new Retin-A higher percent tretinoin formula delivered to me that was better than anything I, else I was getting and it came right to my door. I've been using it every night. I really loved it. They also talked to me about this interesting rash that I was having from too much sun exposure. It comes in this really luxe packaging. The container is really nice and I honestly really love it. My skin has been feeling better since I started using it. And the dermatologist I spoke to was really, really nice. I didn't have to go stand in line anywhere and I felt really loved and supported. I even got a sample of these pimple patches in my package. They're just an incredible customer service. And I would love it if you would try it. Let me explain. You can get $15 off your first visit with a board certified dermatologist at apostrophe.com slash let it out. Use the code to let it out. This code is only available to our listeners. To get started, go to apostrophe.com slash let it out and click begin visit. Then use the code let it out at sign up and you'll get $15 off your dermatology visit. That's apostrophe, A-P-O-S-T-R-O 
P-H-E dot com slash let it out and use that code. It's let it out to get your dermatology visit for $15 off. And we thank Apostrophe for sponsoring this podcast. This episode is brought to you by Organifi. I love Organifi. They make these top-of-the-line superfood organic blends that offer plant-based nutrition with high-quality ingredients. Each Organifi blend is science-backed to craft the most effective doses with ingredients that are organic and free of fillers and contain less than three grams of sugar per serving. I love Organifi's green juice with essential superfoods. It has a clinical dose of ashwagandha that helps reduce stress and support healthy cortisol levels. I also really love the Organifi Gold, which is a superfood tea that supports rest and relaxation so you can wake up feeling refreshed. I like to have that at night, warm. It's incredible. The red juice is also really great when you want to recharge your mind with a delicious superfood berry blend of premium organic potent adaptogens, antioxidants, and a clinical dose of cordyceps. It promotes energy with zero caffeine. They also make an immunity blend, which I really, really love, high in vitamin C to bolster a healthy immune response, which we all really need right now. Each Organifi blend is easy to use by simply mixing it with some water or your favorite beverage. I like to use a milk of sorts. You can do that while on the go. They don't compromise quality for taste. Organifi takes pride in offering the best tasting superfood products on the market at a price that works out to be less than $3 a day. I would love for you to try Organifi. Honestly, it would really be great. Let me explain. You can shop at Organifi.com. Go to Organifi.com and use the code LETITOUT for 20% off all your Organifi products. That's O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com and use the code LETITOUT for 20% off. I want to talk about finishing school as one of the benchmarks on the checklist. And you mentioned the GI Bill and how this really impacted education. Can you talk about that? Yes. The GI Bill, which I I did know that it was, you know, gave tuition to soldiers who had served in World War II, but mostly again, white soldiers, black soldiers were usually discouraged from applying to college or, you know, they were kept out of the tuition money. So because of that, people started to go to college in larger numbers. Before that, people didn't go to college much at all. And because they started going to college in larger numbers and the government supported it, it led eventually to where we are now, where getting a college degree is just seen as a prerequisite for starting your adult life. In a lot of people's cases, it also comes with thousands, if not hundreds of thousands dollars of debt because of this education that you were told you had to get before you even got a job. So it's led to where we are now questioning, you know, is all this debt worth it? Are we hampering young adults' lives before they even start because it costs so much to get this education? Yeah, it's it's really wild. I When you talked about the GI Bill, I'd heard about the GI Bill for years because my grandfather was one of those soldiers and mm. he grew up in upstate New York and all the schools in New York were booked or 
overfilled. So he had to go mm-hmm. to a very small farm town in Michigan and set up his life there and moved my oh. grandma there. And, and so this, that's how you guys ended up in Michigan, in Michigan. Yeah. But all my extended families in upstate New York. Mm-hmm. So I always had like this vague awareness. He would talk about it all the time, this GI bill, <laughs> GI bill. And hearing it in your book, I, but I never thought of the disparities in that. And I never thought of how it impacted the perceived need for college and, so often I feel like I'm having conversations with younger people like you don't really need college or like I didn't really learn anything other than which isn't I don't know if that's true or not but I, I think it's something I would kind of say in passing and thinking about the debt from it and anyway it was just a, again another part of the book that was really eye-opening yeah the way that bill I don't want to mess up her quote but there's a quote in the book that basically says the GI Bill did as much to keep Black people down as anything else. That's a paraphrase, but it just the impact of that bill can't really be overstated on on what it did for people of color in the country. Did not do, I suppose, is the right. correct way to say it. Right. It really made me acknowledge my privilege of you know, what that led to for me in my life and my, Mm -hmm. you know, my grandfather was an immigrant and, you know, but had this opportunity that changed my life, you know, Mm -hmm. generationally. So that was really impactful to read as well. Another thing I want to talk about is the the trend, speaking of that privilege of more people in their 20s and 30s moving home and mm-hmm. how I haven't done done that necessarily, but I've definitely made so many living compromises, like living in strange roommate situations, because mm-hmm. I've also chosen to live in these big cities that are hard, difficult to afford. And But there's also this privilege that I have that if I needed to, I could always go back to Michigan and where the cost mm-hmm. of living is is different. And that's such a privilege. So can you talk about that trend? The number of people living at home in their early 30s is greater than it's ever been. For the first time, that's the most common mode of living. It used to be, you know, with your romantic partner. And since the pandemic started, you know, thousands more of young adults have moved home with their parents. And But even though this is common, it's the most common way of living for young people, it's still seen with sort of like there's this hand-wringing about it. We have this idea of like, they shouldn't be there, you know, like the stoner in the mom's basement or mom like doing laundry for her adult kids. But that hand-wringing really shouldn't be there. It just matters what the person is doing while they're living there, you know, are do you live in a town? Are you going to college? Are you getting a master's degree? And it would just be a smart money saving move to live with your parents. You know, did you have a breakup and you know need a place to recover for a little bit? You know, are your parents providing childcare? Like, there's all of these good reasons to use that support system, and I think that both parents and children are happy with it when they need it. You know, I've 
heard from so many people that they went home during the pandemic and, and are glad they did. You know, I think part of them was dreading it a little bit and thinking like, well, what am I doing? I'm in my 30s. I'm going to go live with my parents. But but then when you check in and say, how's it going? And they're like, I'm really glad I'm here. You know, it's it's been a good thing that we had that. So I think that hand wringing about it is really misplaced because it doesn't mean that these people aren't grown up. It just means that they need that extra support structure for the time being. Yeah. And you mentioned the media's perception of that specific thing. And I'd love to talk about the media's perception of people in their 30s in general, there was a lot more cultural references in text me. And so I'm curious if that was... I mean, you obviously had so much content to cover in this book. So I'm sure it was hard to decide what went in and what didn't. And I heard you on this great podcast on The Cut where you talk about (laughs) the book and this movie that was really informative to me, even on a subconscious level, 13 going on 30. Um, Well, you were, I'm guessing you were 13, right? I was, I was 13 when it came Mm -hmm. out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I remember seeing it in the theaters and I can quote most every line. Yeah, Yeah. it was huge. So I'm curious, like, I, I was almost surprised you didn't mention it in the book. Were you thinking about mentioning more cultural references and there just weren't that many? Early on when I was developing the book, I was also going to include pop culture because it is interesting, you know, but there's, I I think there's not enough of it. And you're right. I had too much else to put in, but I'm sorry. I'm thinking like, do you even know the show 30 something? No. And that's, that's what I kept coming up against. And I barely knew it. But it was a big show in the 70s and I think early 80s. And it was sort of the first show to look at the 30s changing from the 50s. But And it came up, it you know, invented the word 30-something, which is ubiquitous. But I think it wasn't enough to just have that show, which like, you know, you're 30 and you've never heard of it. So I couldn't really, you know, I didn't. I didn't need to explain that show and then explain how far we've come. But like, you can see the difference, obviously, like Jess on New Girl, I know is in her 30s. And so that shows you how her 30s were so different from, you know, say, someone and like, Leave it to Beaver, the wife on Leave it to Beaver, or just to use an extreme example. And and even the show, um, This Is Us, was originally going to be called 36. And you can see how different, I don't know if you watch This Is us, but the the character, the adult characters are so different from the children characters, even though they're they're both 36 at the time when they tell those stories. So there there is pop culture there, but I just don't know that there was something so momentous that that I had to talk about it. Although I love 13 going on 32, obviously. Yeah, it that was such a great episode and and I'll link to it, but and someone, one of the people who produced it has is a friend of mine who's done this show. And it was just really wild to hear that movie unpacked. And I think I, now that I'm this age, watching things of people in their 20s, or this happened, you know, in my 20s of watch some, suddenly I like aged out of watching, you know, teen dramas because there, there's something about, you know, which, 
begs the like need for representation because there's something about seeing yourself and seeing your age portrayed. And then when you feel far from that, it's harder for me to not enjoy that content because I can, you know, love a teen drama as much as the next guy still, but there's something about seeing yourself and comparing yourself. And I, I just think about the friends episode when I think they all turned 25, right? <laughs> <laughs> and they're freaking out and I'm like wow mm-hmm. that's so young <laughs> yeah I mean you can you can see the difference like um even on Fleabag she's in her 30s and there's this one part where her sister is like eating a salad with pine nuts on it doesn't make you a grown-up and she looks at her sister and she's like it fucking does so <laughs> Like you can see how adulthood has changed so much from the people in their thirties who, you know, these women were married and had four kids and they were 30 and then, you know, Fleabag is eating a salad with pine nuts on it. So yeah. the difference in pop culture is huge. Yeah. Yeah. I think the the biggest thing that I'm assuming I have not reached this benchmark and don't know if I will or if I want to, but I assume that this would make one feel like an adult more than anything else, which is becoming a mom and becoming a parent. And you Mm -hmm. talk about very openly not knowing if you wanted to become a mom or not in the book, which was, again, another part that was extremely helpful to read because I relate to a lot. And, you know, there's this uncertainty in your 30s about so many different things. And as you say in the book, that's one that you can't take back and it feels like it's something you should know. Um, Can you talk about that and that decision and what you discovered from interviews and from writing about in the book? I think that women, and I like to hear you say that, that you don't know because I think women don't talk about that indecision enough. You know, it's, it's either assumed you do or you don't. And I, I really envied those people who had such a strong opinion either way, because I truly didn't know for a long time. And I, a woman in a character in the book, Muriel, she and I talked about it a lot and, and really bonded because she's 36 and she still doesn't know and she, she was like, I feel like I'm being bad or like I'm a child. It's like, how do you not know if you want to have children at 36? And, but I think it's fair to not know. It's a huge decision. And so I think talking about that indecision is good and is okay. It's all right to throw it out there that, that you weren't sure, no matter what you eventually decide. I think that helps other people feel more okay with the fact that that they may not be certain if they want to have children or not either. Yeah, I I really was happy that that was that was discussed like that. I'd never heard it discussed like that, and I guess I would just always make up an answer in my mind, like because <laughs> you have to I have don't. one, right? Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. but really, I I don't know, and it depends on the day. And sometimes it's like a hard no, and sometimes it's a maybe, and sometimes it's a for sure. I definitely want to yeah. experience this. I and I right. just don't know. And I think the it goes back to that, you know, kind of bleak point of like it also might not be a choice that I even get to make. Like I might not be able to or I might have to be faced with like doing it on my own or not doing it at all and I would write today it's not something I would want to do on my own and so anyway, it's just there's a heaviness to that question and it was cool to hear you discuss it. 
Thank you. I think we have so much of that anxiety in our own head. Like I was just constantly calculating these numbers of like, well, how old can I be and finally make this decision? And it's so much to carry around, especially as women, because you are on a specific timeline. If you want to have a biological child, there's lots of other ways to have children, of course. But, you know, if that's something that's important to you, then, then you really do have to eventually make a decision and that that's a it's a unique deadline to women. Yeah. Well, since then you did have a baby and he's so cute. So thank you. Can you talk about what becoming a mom has felt like in this year of all years and what it taught you so far? Yes, that's a huge question. So my son was born two weeks before lockdown started. It's also another part of why the pandemic and having to like rewrite the book and having a newborn, like it oh was Oh my God, Kayleen, I can't imagine how it was stressful. a constant swirl of like, wow, wow, nothing is what I would, like you said, this is not what I thought it would be. <laughs> um, and so- but having a newborn during the pandemic has been very different than I thought. And I think in, in a way, I've been really lucky because I haven't had to really reconcile my new mom life with my old life. You know, I haven't had to juggle like, oh, do I need to be home? Can I go out with my friends? You know, how long can I stay at work? You know, we just do these things at home. So in a way, it's been lovely. And I've been here for like every second of his life. But in another way, it's sort of, I feel I'm like, am I a real mom yet? Like I haven't put this mom self out in the world really yet. So I think now what's happening with this opening up is interesting to me. And I'm a little scared of it because it's like, well, okay, now, now it's for real. Now we're back in everything is like it used to be, but my life is different. So How's that going to work? What's that going to look like? Is it all going to fit together? And uh, we'll see. <laughs> we'll see what happens. Yeah. Oh, I can't imagine. That must be so wild. And I, I relate in a way of like, I was having a picnic with some friends last night and, and saying like, God, I, I feel a bit sad in, in some way, which sounds so selfish, but I feel like all of you had a life in LA before I I was here and when things go back to normal like I don't know what that is like here just like you haven't been a mom mm -hmm. in normal times and yeah their response was like well everything has changed like a year yeah. has passed so no one's going to go back as to normal either even if you haven't had a big life change like becoming a mom or moving but I think we're all feeling like the the positivity and optimism, but also like, just like it was jarring when this all started, it's going to be jarring for this to end. Absolutely. I think there, I think there, that's exactly correct and very well said. You know, I feel very hopeful and very optimistic and excited to you start to travel again, start to, you know, hug my friends, start to eat indoors, like all of those things. But I do think that there is a little anxiety and a little like, reluctance to also let go of this quiet time that we've had too. Yeah, for sure. 
Well, before I ask you the rapid fire questions, I want... are they still the same? No, I well, I made <laughs> they are, but I made new ones for you this time. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Um, you wrote an essay for L about how doing push-ups mm-hmm. and doing this challenge help you helped you with the uncertainty of the pandemic. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yes, I love to talk about my push-ups. I didn't <laughs> think I would talk about them at all, and then. Um, my best friend Ruthie and I did them together and we were on a walk one day. I was like, should I write an essay about my push-ups?" <laughs> he was like, absolutely. Aww. So um, when the pandemic, about two weeks in, my friend in San Francisco started a push-up challenge. And at the time I had given birth about a month earlier. So I wasn't sure I could do it, but I, but I wanted to, because I didn't want to be left out. And also I just like a challenge. And so it was do 50 push-ups a day. And I started to do them on my knees in sets of 10. I mean, it, the first time took me hours, but then I just like gradually kept doing them every day and got stronger and just really liked lifting my body, lowering it 50 times a day. And so I just kept going, kept doing it. And it's just become a part of my day doing my reps. And it's made me feel stronger. And I I do like that feeling. And it's just a really, it's a simple thing. Like it's a pain sometimes. (laughs) There are definitely some days where I don't want to do 50 push-ups, but but I do like doing them enough that I've been continuing to do them. I think I will stop at some point, but you know, we'll see when. Well, I knew I was talking to you today. So I did 11 push-ups. Nice. <laughs> nice. I had to stop there. I know. I A lot of people do them since they've seen me do them or since I've been talking about them because it's like, oh, I could do push-ups. I, yeah. I want to do some. And I think that's amazing. And I love to like be inspirational like that. I think it's great. Good for you. Yeah. Thank you. Maybe tomorrow will be 20, 22. <laughs> yes. Do 22. All right. Rapid fire questions. What is the best thing you've eaten in quarantine? We've been making these sardine sandwiches. Um, <gasps> I love harissa. sardines. Oh, they're amazing. So it's like sardine and harissa and this bread. There's a, he has like a, a bakery. Um, Ruthie is a member. It's a like a CSA for bread. And cool. so every Tuesday we walk to get our bread. It's like a, it's a whole event. And then we get this bread, we split it in half, but then we've been making sardine sandwiches with them with harissa. And it's amazing. Oh, that sounds so good. Wait, I need a bit more information. (laughs) It's harissa, sardines, anything else? This really good bread. Do you toast it? Is it warm? No, it's just the bread is so good. And like the sardines are obviously like packed in oil. So they're, it's amazing. It's just like that. So good. I'm a tin fishaholic. Yeah. There's a little French store down the street and they have tins of sardines and they're incredible. Oh, that sounds so good. How is Ruthie? She's good. She is. She's very good. I loved that she is a character in this book as well. Yeah. Not as much as in text me, obviously, because I had her read this book, both because I just wanted her opinion, but I also needed to, you know, make sure she's okay with how I'm writing about her and everything. And um, she's like, I'm barely in this book. I loved the the line about her though because I th- yeah it's in this book I was like is that in text me but some you talk about someone asking you about Ruthie and the fact that they're asking you about how she is implies that you will know and I just mm-hmm. thought that was so beautiful yeah I like when people 
ask. I'm glad you asked. (laughs) (laughs) So with that, what is your greatest lesson on friendship? I mean, you wrote a whole book about it, but something that comes up today. Well, I think two things. In this pandemic, I've had the experience of becoming even closer with my close friends, you know, people that I could go on walks with or obviously like Ruthie and I were in a pod right away. And it's just like, we've become even closer. You know, we just see each other because there's no events anymore. You know, there's no like formal friendship. So we just see each other when we can. And it's just resulted in like a whole new level of intimacy and of friendship. But I also think that the pandemic, I think a lot of people have felt this, have made you miss people you, you didn't see very often and now maybe haven't even seen in a year. And in part, that's heartbreaking and that sucks to not have those friendships. But I do think it also made us realize the value of those friendships even more, which I've always wanted to, to get across how important friendships are. And I hope that these friendships will come back full force and like the how how valuable we consider our friendships to be will only intensify as we start to see people again in mass. Mm, yeah, yeah, that's so interesting you said that because I started this essay that I who knows you know how I start a lot of essays, but about acquaintances of like the mm-hmm, pandemic mm-hmm. lost acquaintances and yeah, familiar strangers are like actually turns out part of our community in a way we didn't even know. Mm-hmm. What is your greatest lesson today on romantic relationships? <laughs> like no one's asked me that. <laughs> I mean, a lot of talk about friendship, but <laughs> I know I talk about friendship all the time, which is I think also a romantic relationship. Even yeah, if it's same. not sexual. As I have committed to one romantic relationship, I think take your time. I think that's what I would say because you're going to be so committed to this person and. Now in the pandemic, we spend every year. And so I'm so glad that that I didn't rush into something because it was like, okay, I have to do this. I'm X age. I need to be serious with this guy. I'm so glad that I was like, oh, okay, this feels right. And this is what I want. And so I think take your time. And if it doesn't feel right, it's probably not right. Mm. Yeah, that's really good advice. I want to talk about writing a bit. And I know one thing that I remembered from our first interview and I would talk to you about all the time after was your writing practice involved waking up and going to your computer Uh and writing a bit and getting in some writing every day. And I tried that a lot because I was inspired by you, but I'm sure that having a baby has impacted that. So I would love to know, did you write a lot of this book that way? And what is your writing practice now? Unfortunately, I can't write in the morning anymore, which I hate. I miss it so much. But it's sort of, I have to get up and take care of my son right away. So yeah, I you said that and I was just like, oh, I miss those morning hours when all I would have to do was like get my coffee and sit at my computer. But instead, it really became writing when he was asleep or, you know, writing when my boyfriend was taking care of him and just like fitting it in 
in that way. And I mean, we took a road trip and I was riding in the front seat of the car because like he was, you know, contained in the back and then I could have time to ride up there. So it's been, it's been not scheduled, which I hate, but I am still compelled to do it. And so I try to write whenever I can fit it in now. And I think, you know, as I get more childcare and as, you know, our days just become more like they once were, then I can go back to a schedule, which I'm sure will make me happy. But I think the truth is that you can find your writing time when you need to. And I think sometimes you may write less and sometimes you may write more and you just kind of have to be flexible with it. Or or I do at least right now. Yeah. I think that is actually really inspiring too. Do you ever feel blocked or stuck with writing or a specific project or not having an idea and what helps you? I do. Yes, for sure. I read Big Magic recently. Have you read Big Magic? Yeah, it's so book good. Creativity. Yeah. It's, it's incredible. And it is very... I just loved the way that she is like, don't take it all so seriously. It's creativity. It is play. It should be fun. And I, I think she's right. I also understand the flip side of like, yes, but it's also, you know, my job and my work. And, you know, I, I need to keep doing this for my self-worth and my financial stability. And so there is that flip side of it. And I think it is a real luxury just to be like, it's fun and it's play. But I do think that keeping it in mind that it's just not that serious is really helpful. And she has this whole line of thought about how ideas come to her. And I don't know that I'm as spiritual as she is and think that, you know, an idea will just find me, but I do find myself sometimes things just percolate up and I think, yes, that's it. That's what I want to write about. Sometimes I'm wrong. Sometimes I try to write about them and I'm like, oh, this is absolutely bad. Or sometimes I'll even finish something and think like, this this isn't working. This isn't right. So I don't know that every idea is necessarily a good one, but I do think that that ideas do bubble up when you need them. Yeah. Yeah, that I, I like that. I think what I've been struggling with lately, and as you know, this is not like that that lately it's been a while but having ideas and wanting to have something to say and feeling like i'm the one to be able to say it and and not only my story but being able to you know do something journalistic but just kind of not knowing where to be able to get something published and break into it and that's something that i related to a lot in the book where I feel with my writing career just incredibly behind. And like I am at this level that I've done some things and I, you know, I wrote a book, but it wasn't really the book I wanted to write. And, you know, I, I published things, but it's been years. And um, I related a lot to the the stories in the the book about that with career. And so I think in writing, a lot of it's uncontrollable, but I guess again, the lesson in the book is to just keep going, but do you ever feel or have you in the past felt discouraged and what's helped you to, to keep going when you just feel like nothing's working? I think the perspective is really helpful and it's hard to see, but everyone who 
publishes something or does something that you want to do or reaches a goal that you want has also faced an incredible amount of rejection and discouragement along the way. Like, you don't see that. You only see the end result. But like, I mean, I can tell you that, you know, like when I get pieces published, usually like three places have rejected it before I land on the right place for it. But, but you don't see that. You only see the piece. And, you know, at times I think like, why am I even still doing this? Like, why haven't I gotten it to the place where I can just, you know, send the email or a piece and, you know, everybody wants it, but that's just not how it works. That's not how at least writing. And I imagine many other career successes work. Like there's an incredible amount of determination and doggedness that I think goes into getting anything done, which maybe it shouldn't be the case. Like I'm almost like, well, why does it have to be so hard? Because just the fact of creating the thing is, is very hard, but I haven't found that there is an easy way to do any of this. Yeah, there's no there's no shortcut or magic person. <laughs> and I think that's the other thing with most careers, but definitely with writing and like I can't just recreate your career, you know, because it's a different right. time and it's I'm a different person and we have different life experiences and skill sets. And, you know, people often say that to me, even like about the podcast, I'm like, I can't even give you advice. Like mine, this is such a fluke, you know, or this is such a, mm -hmm. and you know, there's other parts to it too, but it's, it's not like a lot of going back to the book. Like there's not this set path that you just work in a certain structure and, and keep going. It's, I didn't even know that podcast didn't exist when I was deciding what to do. And Anyway, yeah, the internet really changed the game. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, you got to zig and zag and figure everything out as you go. And some things are going to work and some things aren't. But I haven't found a lot of definitive things in work or in life, honestly, because of going for a big life. People who are going for big lives that are unique to them, it's harder than if you just want to check boxes. Yeah. And I think it, you know, the theme of the book that I said of uncertainty and change and keeping going is it's not for beginners, you know, like it's, um, yeah, it's advanced. And, and I guess you mentioned spirituality and Elizabeth Gilbert. And I think, you know, I believe that like many of the world's religions exist to, you know, help us with the uncertainty that's all around us and like the big, huge uncertainty of like, we're all going to die, you know? <laughs> and with that, I'm curious, like, where are you with spirituality and what happens when we die and aging and, and all of that? Oh, man. I would probably say I've been thinking about death a lot more this year because of the death that's been all around us, but also like, giving birth to someone automatically makes you think about your own end. You know, it just puts that in real perspective. Now there's this other little person that I can measure my life against. But I would say I'm really still at the beginning of thinking about it. And I don't like to think about it a lot. <laughs> like, I'm very like, I don't, I don't want to go there. I don't know. I just... Did you grow up with religion and spirituality? Yeah, yeah, I did. I was raised Lutheran. I was confirmed. You know, I did um, 
wait, oh, communion. I just forgot what it was called. <laughs> uh, it's been a it's been a while. Um, but but yes, yes, I did, and I think I I do think with religion we think about death a lot more when that's something that you focus on because it is just very front and center the idea of the afterlife for whatever your religious belief is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. This is going to be a hard pivot, but I want to ask (laughs) about social media and what your relationship to it is and your thoughts on it. And yeah, just any thoughts on social media and how you interact with it. I like social media to a point. I, for some reason I am built in the way that I can put it away and get rid of it. I know a lot of people can't and and so they they disable it or or they don't they're not on it anymore but for whatever reason I can shut it down like when I'm uh, have the app open I'll be scrolling and, be, and then I'll be like you know stop but then I can forget about it so I think that that's probably just lucky for me but I do think in the book with the eight people I tried really hard to stay away from their social media because I didn't want to see what they presented to the world when they were just presenting their best selves, you know, when they were only showing the positive thing, when they were showing this like high gloss, perfect image of themselves. I didn't want to see what that looked like, or I just wanted to know how they were really feeling inside and the stuff that they wouldn't necessarily share on social media. So, you know, I think social media is fun, but I don't think that I'm not sure if you're looking for a way to not feel alone, that that's the place you should be headed. Yeah. Well said. (laughs) Um, what's your favorite part of your life right now? <laughs> oh, that, that question too. I mean, honestly, it's because our worlds have shrunk so much. It would be my, um, my little Corona pod, which mm-hmm. is my boyfriend and my son and Ruthie. And every Saturday night, we've done this since the beginning. We order in from a restaurant because we couldn't go to restaurants anymore, but we still want to support them. And Ruthie taught us how to play gin, the card game, which I never knew how to play gin. I don't know if everyone knows how to play it. I just didn't. And so we've been keeping score since the beginning. And soon we're all getting vaccinated next week. Um, we will, when we're finally ready, we're going to like go into the neighborhood bar and like, you know, order glass or whatever and like count up our score and see who won. Oh. Year plus of playing gin. So yeah, that, that little community is... It's a wonderful part of my life right now. I love that. Will you tell us who wins? Yeah, sure. (laughs) (laughs) What are, other than that, is there anything else you're really looking forward to right now? I mean, I am looking forward to spring and summer. Yeah, I think, you know, I have anxiety about like everyone else too, about like, what are we going to do now? But I am also looking forward to what are we going to do now? You know, there's, there's the flip side of those things. Yeah. How does it feel to have the book out in the world and especially during the pandemic? I love that it's out in the world and I love that people are responding to it in a way that I wanted, that I am getting people who tell me like, thank you. I needed to hear this. It made me feel less alone. It's strange to have it come out in a pandemic. I think since my second book, I'm a little lucky in that like, you know, I I did have in-person book events that I did have, you know, a dinner with family and friends uh, for the first book. And so I don't feel like, oh, why didn't I get that again? Because I, I did have that. And the real point of the book is just 
to to put this message of that our 30s are different out there. And so like, yeah, it's been strange to do like bookstore events or do other events and stand up and the event ends and I'm just alone in my living room. But mm-hmm. you know, it is what it is. <laughs> it's still it's still cool to put something I created out in the world and have people respond to it. Yeah. And still like such a big accomplishment and should be celebrated. And I know how hard you worked on this book for two years. And like you said, you really did make something that was very tricky seem effortless in this book and in these pages. So congratulations all while being pregnant, having a baby (laughs) and in a pandemic. So it's really no small thing. And this is one of the celebrations. If we couldn't have a book party and I couldn't give you a hug, like this is this is it. <laughs> yeah, thank you for all of that. Yeah, and someday I will buy you a drink here or in New York and we will Absolutely. celebrate in person. Yes. yes, let's do that. Well, thank you again so much for being here. And as you know, the name of this podcast is Let It Out. So <laughs> did you let out everything that you wanted to? Is there anything that you wish that I would have asked about the book or about life or that you want to share that you never get to talk about? No, Katie, you asked everything. I feel like we talked about so much. This was really great. And I do remember thinking when we first talked about Text Me and I first met you and like learned your podcast style and the experience of being on this podcast. I was like, she's wonderful. You had great questions. Like it was just, it's a, it's a, it's a nice journey and a nice experience. And I remember that vividly from the first time. And this was just as lovely. Oh, I can't wait for your next book. And that was so nice. I don't know why I'm tearing up. That was like, apparently I really need to hear that today. So thank you so much for saying that. That means so much coming from you because you know, I admire you so much and your work and you as a person. And um, that means so much. And I hope every book, Let It Out, is a stop for you. Oh, good. Me too. Me too. So let's end with the letting out a deep breath. So inhale, let it out. That felt good. Thank you, Kayleen. Thank you. All right. That was my episode with Kayleen. Thank you so much for listening. I'm so happy that you're here. It means genuinely so much. And read her book. Read her last book. Read her short book. Read her essays. She's tremendous and one of my favorite people to talk to and read their work. And I'm really happy that this podcast allowed me to meet her several years ago and stay connected with her and get to have a conversation about this book and get to read an early copy and it really means so much to me so I would love to continue the conversation with you about being in your 30s and and what that feels like for you or if you're in your 20s and how you feel about entering your 30s or if you're older if you're in your 40s or 50s or 60s or 70s or maybe we have people in their 80s and 90s listening to this podcast I don't know I would love to know so Instead of an emoji this week, why don't you comment your age? Is that weird? Just the number of your age on my Instagram, on Kayleen's Instagram to let us know you're listening all the way to the end. And yeah, I think it would just be interesting to discuss this and how we're feeling about growing up and aging and being in the midst of a pandemic and the ending of this in some way. And anyway, I love you. I'm grateful that you're here. If you want to support this podcast, please support the sponsors. It really does help so much. So 
The link to do that is in the show notes. And if you want to get the show notes sent directly to you right to your inbox in the Let It Out letter, which is an essay from me, sometimes, sometimes just some musings, sometimes just the episode in the show notes, feel free. The link is in the show notes. I would love for you to be there. And we also have our journaling kit and others, which you can see all on the site. Love you. Thank you. I'll talk to you next week. 